If you have your Bibles with me, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 11 this morning. We're continuing our study of this book. A little bit of an ad I found. Um, it's, it's a hunger and relief kind of organization. And I saw this, this little ad um, in a magazine. Here's some statistics. Over 1.1 billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. Man, that's hard to believe. Over 1.1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. Every day, 25,000 die from dirty drinking water. 25,000 die. 35,000 children under five every day, and it's mostly preventable if they had basic medical care for pneumonia, diarrhea, and measles. One out of four people have access to health care. There are 47 million refugees and displaced people. Christians in nearly 50 countries are not wanted. They're tortured, imprisoned, or put to death for their beliefs. Half of the world's population is unable to vote. There are 100 million street children, and the number is growing. Now, when you read an ad like that, I mean, why are you telling me this? And obviously, they're giving dire statistics to try to move you to compassion. I'm telling you these, these dire things because I'm hoping you'll give us some money and help people out. And then two thoughts go through my head. Well, these people you're describing, are they in this condition because it's their fault? Because if it's their fault, it's kind of easy for my conscience to say, oh, I don't need to fool with them. You know, they're getting what they deserve. But then the, the next question, well, no, it's not their fault. Oh, well, I'm better off than they are. So it's, it's trying to, to move us there. Well, as I was thinking about, you know, what moves us to compassion, I thought, well, what moves God to compassion? And what moves God to compassion is different than us. God's so much different than us because you, you don't see God asking the question, is it your fault? Because if it's your fault, you deserve it. Rather, you have God saying, I know it's your fault. It reminded me of the, the woman caught in adultery. She was caught in adultery. And everybody knew it was her fault. And yet Jesus takes actions to disperse the crowd, you know, and says, who do you see? She's looking around, nobody. Who condemns you? Well, I guess nobody. He says, I don't condemn you either. It's your fault. You need to deal with that sin. I don't want you to do that again. But he sends her off with love and hope that she can live without this adulterous lifestyle. And she, he sends her off as one who is no longer under condemnation. That's the kind of compassion I see God display in 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 11. So I, I want us to kind of get into this passage and begin to see how we have a God who is compassionate towards sinners. 
You'll see that as, as, as we go together through 1 Samuel chapters 9 through 11. Uh, we'll obviously start with, with chapter 9 and uh, begin to see just the story unfolding. And, and I want you to see, first of all, just, just the way God shows us compassion many times. Beginning at verse 1, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeor, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. Now he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants, rise, go and search for the donkeys. All right, the story begins like another day on the farm. Here you got farmer and his son, main characters, Kish and Saul. Except we're told Saul, which is going to matter later on, Saul, man, he was handsome. He's, he's one of those farmers that they're going to put in the magazine. Um, tall and handsome, but they've lost their donkeys, and Saul's going to go out and find the donkey. I just want you to get the sense of how ordinary this is. As, as this story begins, there's no hint that Kish or Saul sees this as strange, unusual, out of the ordinary. Donkeys get out. Donkeys get away. We need them. Go and get the donkey. So as Saul starts out on this journey, he's going through his farmer routine, thinking, you know, no big deal. This is, this is what I do. This is who I am. But the story, you know, kind of develops from that. Um, verse 4, he passes through the, the hill country of Ephraim, and he, he passes through uh, different lands. Uh, verse 5, he comes. You know, he, he's going a long ways. Like, this donkey must have been known to be a runner, you know. Take off. And he um, comes to verse 6. He said to him, Behold, uh, now there's a man of God in the city. Well, we're going to find out that same. Well, why don't we go ask him if he can kind of help us find our donkeys. Just ordinary day, looking for your animals. Maybe we ought to go and ask Samuel. Of course, that's going to lead us to the place where we're leading to the place where Saul becomes king. But think, first of all, just how ordinary this selection and this choice. How often it is that God brings deliverance through the ordinary. Or it takes an ordinary person to do extraordinary things. You know, as, as I started thinking about this passage, it, it reminded me of some ordinary folks who deliver us every day. It reminded me of my mom. I started missing my mom just thinking about some of this, that, you know, how many times she was there, and I didn't see it even as the hand of God for, for my good. She was there to, to raise up and to deliver. But a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, uh, sometimes it's, it's just that ordinary person that's close to you that God chooses to use for your good and help. 
And that's certainly what's going on here. He's choosing uh, Saul, and he's raising him up. Because as, as soon as Saul's off, <clears throat> before long, he's meeting Samuel. Jump to chapter 10, verse 1, and Samuel takes out a flask of oil, pours it on his head, kisses him, and says, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Like, whoa, what just happened? I'm just out here looking for a donkey? And the prophet of God is anointing my head and saying, hasn't God appointed you to be the king? You know, if you're Saul, I'm thinking, look, uh, we've never had a king. I've never had a dream about being a king. I'm just looking for a donkey here. And yet he's getting anointed and God's raising him up to be the first king of Israel. Remember chapter 8, they were asking for a king and praying for a king, and here is God's deliverance. Well, let's stay with chapter 10 a minute. So verse 2, when you go from me today, well, let me just say, share with you, <clears throat> to see how ordinary this is, Samuel is saying, okay, he's just anointing my head, he tells me I'm going to be king. Yeah, right. But then the next thing we're going to read, Samuel says, look, three things are going to happen to you today. So he tells him the future. Number one, you're going to find the donkeys. That's, that's done. Number two, people are going to give you bread. And number three, you're going to prophesy with prophets. It's like, you know, I've been looking for this donkey. I hadn't found him. Yeah, I am. I've been looking for a while. I would love some bread. Prophecy? I, I don't know. You know, but he tells him that ahead of time, and then it starts to unfold. Verse 2. So it's to convince Saul. It's also to, con to convince others. Verse 2. When you, when you go for me today, you'll find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. You know, so I, I don't even t I'll even tell you where they're going to be. You know? And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father ceases to be concerned about the donkeys. He's now anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then, verse 3, you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor, and there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. It was a family feast, you know, basic family feast elements. You need your goats, you need your bread, you need your wine. So you're going to find, find these guys, and they're going to give you bread. Verse 4, and they will greet you, and they'll give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Now, verse 5, after that, so two things. Third thing, afterwards you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. I guess that's basic prophecy gear, you know? They got it. Verse 6, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It's like, whoa, kind of Superman thing. You're fixing to get changed. Verse 7, it shall be when these signs, these three things, these are three miracles that are about to happen to you today. When these three signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. Powerful statement. Nothing's more 
precious than God being with us. Verse 8, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. And then it happened. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. <coughs> uh, verse 10, when, when they came to the hill, there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them, just as you know, Samuel had told him. And, well, it doesn't stop. I'm anointing you to be king. These three things are going to prove God's doing something. Chapter 10, verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, so all the people kind of gather up, and Samuel looks out and says, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Well, let me get back to verse 23. How would they figure this out? Verse 23. So they ran, they took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So Saul was not your, I was going to say, um, your average Joe. I'll say you're, he's not your average David. Okay, does that sound fair? He, you know, if, if, he's, if, if he's standing here beside me, my head, top of my head stops right here. He's got a shoulder and a head above me. So I'm the average guy, and he's up above that. And then Samuel says, do you see him? So anybody who looks around, where, where? Oh, who's that tall guy? I mean, this guy is head and shoulders above the rest. Saul said, there's our man whom the Lord has chosen, verse 24. Surely there is no one like him among the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. Wow, what just happened? Then, then Samuel took the people, uh, the ordinance, told the people the ordinance of the kingdom and he wrote them in a book, placed it before them. He's anointed um, Samuel king. Verse 27, I want you to see the other side. Verse 27, but certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him, and they did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. So you got people who say, wow, this is a king. It's clear. Other people say, I'm not sure I like him. I'm not sure I want him as our king. There's, there's that, always that disgruntled group. But it was kind of clear to everybody else, he is our king. Well, then war. So we asked for a king. We got a king. Convince the king he's the king. Convince the people he's the king. And then war. Chapter 11. Now Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Naash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Naash, the Ammonite, said to them, I'll make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I'll make it a reproach on Israel. So you got this Ammonite saying, you know, he besieges the city. He said, I'm, I'm going I'm to starve you all to death. I'm going to wipe you out. They said, let's don't go that route. Could, could we come to some agreement? We'll be servants. He says, no, 
I don't want just servants. I want one-eyed servants. Let me gouge out your one eye. I want everybody to be the one-eyed jack kind of thing. They said, ah, we don't like that. Let us pray about it a week. Let us, let us, let us consult. Let's, let's think about this. And we'll come back. But that's pretty gruesome. That's what's going on. Well, as they have these seven days to consult, news starts spreading around the territory. What are we going to do? The Ammonites are going to either kill us or we're going to be their servants with one eye gouged out. What do you want to do kind of thing? Well, the news, verse 5, comes to Saul. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And he said, what's the matter with the people? It's like, why is everybody crying? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. And he got angry. I don't know what, what he had in his hand, but verse 7, kind of get a picture. He took a yoke of oxen. And he cut them in pieces, and he sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. So basically, Saul he's, comes out behind the ox. I guess it's his ox. They tell him why everybody's crying, and he's just you just see the the anger began to burn and he takes some cutting device and he takes one of the oxen out, starts cutting him up into pieces and says, here, take this piece to all the territories and you tell them, if they don't come and fight this battle with me and with Samuel, then I'm going to do the same thing to their ox. And so when people get this hunk of oxen and they're told the story, then the Spirit of God falls on all these people, so I don't want that to happen, and they all run to battle, and through that, verse 8, he numbered them, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and of Judah, 30,000, so 330,000 men are rounded up for this battle, and all of this in seven days, and they they don't even have cell phones yet, you know, This is the Spirit of God moving on them, moving everybody into battle. And Saul takes them into battle as their king. And we get get to conclusion real quick. Verse 11. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left. I mean, that's pretty significant battle so they start at dawn they go till about lunchtime and by lunchtime they had wiped out the enemy to such a degree that you didn't see two of them standing side by side I mean you don't take on an army of 330,000 people by yourself you, you want a buddy but there's no buddies anymore I mean they've wiped them out and everybody's scattering so Israel has this huge, major victory. Verse 12, And then the people said to Samuel, Who is it? Who who, who is he that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring them in, or we may put them to death. It's like, look, we showed them. Who said, 
Saul couldn't be a good king. Look what just happened. Just look, just what? Just look, you know? It's like, let's, let's wipe these guys out. Saul's answer, verse 13. But Saul said, no, no, no. Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. There's our theme. Who brought deliverance? Who was really the compassionate one? Who took care of the people of God? Saul got it. It was the Lord. He said, don't look to me and say, we, had, we got a great king that delivered you. I'm an, I'm an ordinary farmer. I was just out looking for my donkey. What happened here today was the Lord. And the Lord has delivered us through an ordinary individual like Saul. I mean, when you, you go through the Bible, the, the list is endless, isn't it? Of the ordinary people who became extraordinary. You know, when, when you read that story about Moses, and God comes and chooses him after really 80 years of preparation, and Moses is like, God, this job you're calling me to requires a lot of preaching, teaching, speaking. I can't speak. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty ordinary on that, that chore. And, you know, God, again, like, oh, good grief. You can get Aaron. You can get somebody else to speak if you need, need help with speaking. God doesn't mind using people who feel unqualified and ordinary. Or take Joseph. Who expected him to be Pharaoh-ish over Egypt? I mean, all his life, it's like he's been in a prison. What's his qualifications for this? It's pretty ordinary as far as humans are concerned. And God said, no, here's your man. Just like he says about Saul. You get to the New Testament. I mean, so many stories have been read about the, the 12 disciples. Who would have picked that motley group to be the 12 apostles? I mean, fishermen and tax collectors. And it's like, Really? That's who you're using to, to be the foundation for the church? Or even the Apostle Paul. I mean, you, you can't read through the New Testament and not marvel at the Apostle Paul. And yet, before conversion, what was he? He was a glorified policeman. You know, uh, overzealous policeman out trying to throw people in jail. And God's going to raise him up to be a deliverer to so many towns and communities and start so many churches. Just begin to see it's God's way to use ordinary folks as a means for the deliverance of his people. Just as he did with Saul. He's done over and over throughout the scripture. And when you get to, um, to Christ, I mean, it, it, I'll read a quick verse, Acts, Acts 2, 22. Just to remind you, Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Don't you remember the struggle the church had with that phrase? Wait a minute, did you say Nazarene? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing. There, we can't have salvation out of Nazareth. But it goes, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you, 
by God with miracles. Why do you think I brought you the, the miracles, the wonders, and the signs? Because I knew you, you have this tendency not to believe God does great deliverance through ordinary people from places you didn't imagine would ever exist. God's ordinary way of working and delivering. He did it all through the Old Testament. He gets to the New Testament. It's like you should have, have gotten this message by now. They still don't. You still don't get it with Christ. There are a lot of people, even today, that what's, what's with Christ? Why do you worship Christ? I mean, I get he's a good man. No, no, no. You need to see he's God's deliverer. Our salvation comes through him. You know, one of the reasons I, I, part of our service, I was talking about Margaret to uh, Chesterfield, small place. How about Ruby? You know, small town. Where are you from? I mean, are you from some insignificant place that a lot of people haven't heard of? See, that doesn't matter. It's, it's God's way many times of using Seemingly insignificant places and insignificant people to do extraordinary things. Are you just a farmer? Are you, maybe you're good at what you do, but nobody recognizes it. I don't know. It, it, it's that kind of thing. It gives me hope. Um, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1. Let me read it real quick. Chapter 1. Beginning at verse 26. It gives me hope in the ordinary. Because I know I'm in that camp. I know I'm not the best preacher, teacher, pastor in the world. But see, I don't have to be. All I have to be is ordinary. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise among the flesh. There are not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast. In the Lord. Maybe it's a message that gives you hope as well. God takes ordinary people and delivers. He can take you, he can take somebody in your family, he can take me, he can take us all. But if we are delivered, how did that happen? It wasn't me, it wasn't you, and it wasn't that other person. It was the Lord who brought deliverance. And it's his manner to do so by using people, those ordinary folks that he has created. Now, let's ask the second question back in Samuel. Not only how does God normally deliver, but secondly, what's the motivation? What's the reason behind his compassion and deliverance of us? That there's Philistine oppression. There's these Ammonites, neighbors, who are trying to kill and what does God, why is, why is God moved to help out? Why, why, why should it matter to him? Look at uh, 
chapter 9. These are the blessings from God coming down. You hear them? Rain. And I always think, God, you know, just what you're doing, refresh and cleanse. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16. You might even want to underline the last part of it. It's pretty significant. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people. Here's the part you want to underline. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. That's pretty awesome. God says, I'm raising up Samuel. This is what Saul's giving me. This is what I do. I raise up people to deliver. But the reason I am raising up Saul for this deliverance is because I have observed and heard the cry of my people. It's like, and I have a heart. When my people cry, I want to be there for them. I see this with mothers. I think mothers are better at it than dads, but dads got it a little bit too. You know, they hear their own kids cry. And I remember my dad and mom discussing it one day when I was crying. You know, kind of clued me into this. You know, David's out in the lobby crying. Dad pokes mom. David's crying. Yeah, I know. I hear him. You going to do anything? No. You going to do anything? Nah. Why not? Just a frustrated cry. He didn't anything. He just didn't get what he wanted. Selfish kid. <clears throat> you know, let him cry. Then after a while, he's crying some more. Ah, that's just him and his brother. He's, that's a fr- that's frustrated cry too. They, you know, they're just fighting it out. They need to learn how to work out their own problem. Nah, I'm not going. You're not going. No, nah, I'm not going. Let them cry. You know, so they don't only really hear the cry, they hear the kind of cry. And then all of a sudden, nobody else kind of hears it. David's crying, and mom jumps up. Where are you going? Hey, what are you doing? What? You didn't hear him cry? What? Yeah, he's been crying a lot. Yeah, but this is a cry that's an emergency. This time he's hurt. And there's no way I can sit still when my child is hurt. I can tell this is a cry of desperation. This is a cry of great pain. Doesn't matter how it happened. Doesn't matter what he was doing. All I know now is he's hurt. And he runs. Or she runs. He runs. And that's the description God's given us. He says, the reason I'm doing this is because I heard my people cry. Look over at uh, Judges. Uh, chapter 16, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 16. Judges chapter 10, verse 16. You see this phrase again, but maybe it's a little more descriptive. Judges 10, verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And catch this, because he could bear the misery of of Israel no longer. It's like you have God like drawing a line and saying, I'll let them cry, I'll let them suffer, I'll let them go through hurt. There's a lot of that that's good for them. 
But there comes a point where a, a father has to say, enough is enough. And I can't take it anymore. I must run and deliver. And that's the kind of God we've got. A God who has a limit to the amount of pain he will allow his own children to suffer. He says, there's, there's a time where pain's necessary and good. And when you're in that, by all means, cry out. Do, do you cry out to God? Isn't it pretty cool that you, you have a God who hears your cry? And then let him discern you know, how bad your situation is. But keep crying out to God because we have a God who listens, who observes, whose ear is not so dull that he cannot hear his own, whose arm is not so short that he cannot reach out and save. Cry out. We must spend those times crying out to God in prayer. It gives a lot of hope to that phrase in Romans ten thirteen: whosoever will Let's call it, cry out. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So why do preachers urge you? Hey, all you need to do is pray. Do you have Jesus in your life? Cry out. You need a deliverer. You need compassion because you are a sinner in sin. We have a God who hears sinners cry. So cry out. He has a heart. He's a God that's moved to the cries of his people. It's amazing. That's the glory of our God. Third, I want you to see not only the manner in which he typically delivers the, the heart of God, but how he extends it to sinners. Just the measure of this compassion. I want you to forget, as you, you know, it's been a week, two weeks, but when you read 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 11, don't forget chapter 8. Chapter 8 was the chapter where they asked for a king. Chapter 8 was the chapter where it was real clear. Wait, you're not just asking for a king. You're asking for a substitute God. You're asking Samuel to, re be, to, you know, to join you in rejecting God. You're not just rejecting Samuel, you're rejecting God. That's what God felt and heard and saw in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he says, let me give you some love. Let me give you my compassion. We're like, really? Who does that? Who extends grace and love to sinners? Who, who would love someone while, while they are in the process of rejecting him. And that's, that's precisely the measure of God's grace. And it, and it goes to sinners while we are being rebellious. Romans talks about it. We are at enmity with God while we are fighting against God. He still extends to us grace, love, compassion. That's his mercy extended to us, just unbelievable that God wants to extend that. It goes 
so contrary to the common philosophy today, the philosophy I grew up with, and which is, philosophy is God helps those who help themselves. Or God helps those who are good, right? Survey was done. Um, how many Americans believe God helps those who help themselves in the Bible? It's like 83% say, oh yeah, that's in the Bible. It is not in the Bible. There are a lot of preachers who preach it. There's a lot of parents who preach it to their kids. You need to be good. Why do I need to be good? Because God helps those who are good. No, 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 no. That, I hate that philosophy because not only is it not biblical, not only is it not here, it's not there in the Bible, but it, it, uh, it pushes up the pride of man instead of the praise of God. Because then if you do get helped, you say, well, why were you helped? Well, it's because I was good. God helps those who are good, who help themselves. No. You were helped while you were still at enmity with God, while you were still warring with Him, while you were still rejecting Him. So all praise goes to God. Let Him who boasts, boast in the Lord, because God was merciful to not only a sinner, but a terrible sinner. You were in this process of, of doing your own thing without Him, not including him. Understand that. Chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, verse 12, verse 13, Saul got it here. says, the people said to Samuel, who is it? You know, these, these wicked people, they were the bad ones. We were the good ones. We chose Saul. Saul follows it up, verse 13. No, no, no. Not a man shall be put to death this day for the Lord's accomplished deliverance. We, we didn't do it. We didn't help ourselves to success and victory. God was our deliverer. We were the sinner. So verse 15, we should rejoice. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. We should rejoice as well. Reminds me of Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. The only right response is, well, all praise to God. Wow. I didn't do anything to clean up my sin. Only God. He extended grace to this wicked sinner. How, do, how does he keep doing that today? And we see it in this story played out before us with, with Saul and Samuel. But how does it happen today? Turn to Acts chapter 2. That's the means of God's grace today, clearly through Christ. Acts chapter 2, already read verse 22. We see uh, God's means of grace. Verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to to be held in its powers. God has raised up Christ. It's impossible Christ to be held down in the agony of death. Verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 31, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. So we just got a quote from the Old Testament. And it says, David said these words, but David was looking to to Christ. Christ is going to want, be the one who's not abandoned to the grave. He doesn't undergo decay. 
Verse 31, he looked ahead, he spoke the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh undergo decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So this is Peter preaching, saying, God extends grace to sinners, and he does that through Christ. How can Christ do it? Christ died. No, no, no. You didn't, you didn't see what just happened? Christ has been resurrected. And Peter tells them this, this story of Christ, yes, crucified, buried in the tomb, and then resurrected. He says, and if you get that picture, he says, God resurrects all who are together, all who are in Christ. Um. It reminded me of um, a West Virginia coal mine accident. One of the most emphatic things that just it just um, gripped me. It's one of the few things I, I, I just I still remember vividly while watching television. Um, there was a bad accident up in um, Virginia about uh, seven years ago. Um, Twenty-five miners died, and the caption in the news was worse since 1984. I want to take you back to 84 because that's the one I remembered. In 84, there were 29 miners who died in a Utah uh, cave and it just, it, it shook the nation. It's the worst that we had seen or heard. But then shortly after that, I don't remember how far, long after that, 16 more miners get trapped in a cave. And the fact that it happened so close after 29 just died, I mean, as a nation, we were gripped. It's like, close down the coal mines. This, this profession's too dangerous. Don't do this anymore. That's the way we all felt. And um, the, the wives were there, and the children were there, and the media were there. And I can still see those miners being raised up out of this hole, and all 16 survived. But when we saw that, it was just... There was not a, a dry eye in, in the mind. I mean, this place is like everybody said, they were calling it a resurrection. They have been resurrected from a tomb because they'd been down there over three days without uh, water, without food. Just, and they said they saw nothing. But then the big rocks moved and a hole opened up and light and air came in and they came out. And we just like, oh, we don't get to see this. This is so beautiful. To see people live, we thought they died. And it's that kind of feeling I get when I think of the, the, the tomb of Christ. He's dead. He's in the tomb. The disciples had lost hope. Nobody was even sticking around watching. But the big rock moved. And Christ comes out. That's what Peter's preaching. He says, don't you get it? It's, not, it's impossible for that rock or for this tomb to hold Christ. And he comes out because he is the deliverer. And if you're in Christ, even if you are entombed and die, you will be resurrected. You will come out. There's deliverance extended to those who are united to Christ. Christ saves us. Not on the basis of what we've done. Because he loves delivering sinners.
Let's pray together. Father, let's just take a moment. Lord, give us a moment just to worship you. To marvel at the kind of God we have. The kind of God where nothing's impossible. The kind of God who can use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The kind of God who has ears for sinners and hears our cry. Lord, you give us hope. You give us promise. Father, if there are those in this room this morning that have never seen how glorious, awesome, how kind and compassionate you are, we plead with you to hear their cry. We ask of them, cry out, knowing that whoever calls on the Lord shall be saved. Father, we thank you for letting us begin this week just remembering our God's compassion for sinners like us. None of us are here because we're worthy. None of us are here because we deserve it. None of us are here to get. We're here because you're a great God who loves to give and loves to give deliverance and compassion. So we worship and we adore you. Continue to bless, Lord, as we meet you at the table. Remember what Christ has done for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.